This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Uh, it's my great privilege to have a public conversation with Pat Harker. Uh, this is kind of a, uh, a nostalgic time for me because we used to have lots of these virtually every Friday afternoon. Uh, one of the disadvantages of the wonderful new buildings we have at Wharton is you no longer have these kinds of meetings. I probably would never have met you given the way we're separated now, but it turns out that Pat and I lived on the same floor and we both tended to be there late on Friday afternoons. Pat, because he's always done three times as much as any normal person. Me, because I'm very inefficient. But it was the opportunity for us to, to talk a lot. And uh, it was wonderful to get to know Pat, his research agenda, and his, his profound interest and understanding of technology. In 1994, when I started the Wharton Financial Institution Center with a very generous grant from the Sloan Foundation, one of the very, well, in fact, the first big initiative was a study of productivity in retail banking, which Pat led. Um, and he led a team of graduate students, uh, many of whom got very prestigious placements and excellent PhDs out of it. Um, and he really had results that changed industry practice. He looked at uh, productivity in retail banking and found huge discrepancies uh, within banks of more or less the same scale that um, were simply differences in their ability to implement the existing technology. Um, Pat really began to, to answer the, uh, the solo paradox, which is when you go into a bank, you see technology everywhere except in the bottom line. And uh, you found some very good reasons it wasn't showing up in the bottom line. Well, um, FinTech is really, uh, somewhat different, but in some sense, it's the same kind of issue. How does technology affect productivity in the provision of financial services? What's changed, I suppose, is it's no longer so much about the hardware as about the software. And of course, the internet, its, it's penetration, its speed, the quality of access has made it possible to think of all kinds of things and change the speed with which they happen in a way that was simply not thought of earlier. Um, since Pat has this broad knowledge, I wanted to, to sort of organize the conversation, if we may, around three different uh, areas. First, which I guess is going to be unusual in this conference agenda, but at least was interesting to me, is how the innovations uh, around FinTech uh, are changing and challenging the way the Fed has traditionally done business. Um, second would be uh, what I guess would be the more ordinary view. How does this affect the way in which the Fed oversees the regulated banking industry, but more broadly thinks about stability in the financial services industry. And then finally, uh, take a look at what these innovations, not just FinTech, but the broader technical innovations it represents, are going to affect long-term employment trends and how will it affect the Fed's ability to uh, maintain full employment and what, in fact, should we be doing now to prepare for it. So, um, with that having been said, and we will leave time at the end for questions, of course, um, I'd like to ask about how the Fed itself is reacting to these profound innovations in the way in which the speed with which things are done, the kinds of software, the ability to use huge quantities of data and uh, analyze them using artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, 
the Fed has all the problems that uh, the incumbent financial institutions have. It's got legacy systems all over the place. Plus, it has, I think, even more trouble changing them because it has uh, the obligation to stay connected with thousands of financial institutions. It has a very, very serious responsibility to maintain the security of the system and to ward against uh, cybersecurity threats. And um, it has a huge coordination problem. Yet, uh, the pressures that current financial institutions are uh, facing to do things more quickly, more accurately, are, are surely apparent inside the Fed as well. Um, the Fed, in some sense, is the granddaddy of all people who sit on top of big, big data, uh, which presumably could improve the way you facilitate transactions. It could uh, improve, enhance bank supervision. Um, it could improve economic forecasting to some extent. And I'm sure there are other applications. How's the Fed thinking about these challenges? So I'll start with the standard Fed disclaimer. I'm not the Fed. <laughs> so I can only say uh, what I think and not anybody else in the Federal Reserve System. So just a little bit of, and thanks, Dick, for uh, agreeing to be here. Um, a little bit of uh, just leveling the ground. People think of us, obviously, as a monetary policy engine for the country and policymakers, but we're also a bank. And people often forget that the Federal Reserve System, the 12 reserve banks, make up the bank. Uh, and the banking products. And we have the wholesale product office in New York, the retail product office in uh, headquartered in Atlanta, cash headquartered in Saint, uh, San Francisco. And, uh, we, and so who are our customers? Well, they're banks and the US government. We're the fiscal agent for the US government. So out of St. Louis and Kansas City, lots of activity related to the treasury services that we provide. And this gets sprinkled all across the system, the kind of activity. So for example, we just, build a very large and complex post-payment processing system for the U.S. Treasury. We build it here. We handed it over uh, to Kansas City to run and put it in operation. So as a bank, as Dick said, we have lots of legacy systems. Fedwire, Fedwire Security, ACH, and we can go down the list. And so we have the same problem large banks have of how to modernize those systems. Um, but we also have another issue. So it's not just the question of how much money do we spend to modernize this. By the way, everybody thought for years and years cash is going away. We still all have cash operations. It is not going away. You know, below our feet is a lot of cash. And uh, <laughs> it's just, that's not going away anytime soon, at least. It uh, doesn't seem like that. So, But the, in addition to the legacy kind of systems that uh, we have, we have two other constraints that are imposed on us that Dick alluded to. One is, we can't cherry pick, right? We can't pick our customers and say, we like you better than you, uh, right? And so, and you're profitable, you're not profitable. Uh, we have to be, ubiquity is clearly important in the Federal Reserve System. Then the second constraint that's on us with the Monetary Policy Act is that we shouldn't be in businesses where the private sector can provide that efficiently and effectively. So that raises a set of questions that we're frankly still debating. So several years ago, actually before I got here in 15, uh, 2015, the system launched this conversation about faster payments and more secure payments. And that process, many of you I think are probably, I see some heads nodding, have been involved in that in some way, shape, or form. That conversation continues. But it comes down to, I think, a fundamental discussion 
that the system, ultimately the Board of Governors, has to make a, a decision on what businesses are we in? And if we're not going to be in it, can the private sector provide it? And if the private sector provides it, are they going to make sure that the small community bank in Altoona, PA, can plug in? And so I think that's the real challenge for the Fed as we think through the emerging landscape of technology and changes in technology, is how do we provide the basic rails of the financial system uh, so that the money can move efficiently and do that in a way that everybody can have access to it? Uh, everybody. So I think that's really, that's really the challenge. And so this conversation's going on. We have not um, come to any conclusion. There was a Federal Register notice recently about asking questions around real-time gross settlement systems or real-time systems that other central banks in the world have uh, put, put in place. Whether we do that or not is still an open debate. Uh, that has, there's no conclusion on that. You mentioned the uh, other central banks in the world, and it is true you've got to worry not only about what's going on here, and especially in this Federal Reserve District, given where we sit, but the fact that the dollar is the main reserve currency for the world, and you have to somehow interact with lots of other central banks, some of which are actually experimenting with issuing their own digital currencies. Uh, and I'm sure this is something that your R&D function has to worry about, as well as cryptocurrencies, which I assume you're not really thinking about adopting, but have to worry about nonetheless. Um, what is the thinking about digital currencies? So I'll start with, we've had digital currencies since the computer, right? Since the advent, there's only 1.5-ish trillion dollars of currency outstanding, uh, hard currency uh, in the world today. Uh, the vast majority of money moving around the system is in digital form. So I think you have to ask, so digital has been in existence since the first mainframes. It's going to continue to be in existence. That's how we move money across the economy. The question about cryptocurrencies, again, is still an active discussion um, about what are the pros and cons, the advantages and disadvantages of different types of technology. Um, you know, I think what we're finding, and in the case of currency, uh, we, can argue, we can talk about and we can argue about different technology platforms, blockchain and variants of blockchain and so forth. To me, though, it comes down to a very fundamental question. Do you trust that currency? The vast majority of Americans and people in the world are walking around with dollars in their pockets not even thinking about whether they trust that it's actually worth a buck. Right? They just walk around and assume it's a buck. Why? Because their life experience and generations of life experience have been that it's worth a buck. When they walk in the store, it's worth a dollar. That's not necessarily the case for some of the emerging uh, cryptocurrencies. And there, they do seem to behave a little more commodity-like uh, with variable prices than, say, the buck. So trust is really at the center. We only believe that piece of paper is worth something because there's a central bank that backs it up, and the American people believe that we will actually back it up. If you don't have that, it's hard to build a broad-based uh, you know, use of an, uh, some other currency. Now. I don't dismiss the fact that people could build that trust over time, right? There's no question people could build that trust over time. But that's ultimately what it comes down to. If people don't believe it's worth what you say it's worth, it's not worth what you say it's worth. It goes back to the fundamental principle that at root all finance is a confidence game. 
in the best sense of the word, of course. But um, uh, the, uh, the attempts by some central banks to introduce digital currency, though, I think go a little further than, yeah. than you would suggest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They really, and it, it actually speaks to the notion that we're sitting on a lot of actual cash. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think some countries actually have the ambition, and Sweden, I think, has gone a long way toward displacing yeah, yeah, absolutely. with digital currency. Yeah, so here's my litmus test. When we get rid of the penny, we can talk about digital currency. <laughs> <laughs> you got me there. <laughs> we can't even agree on getting rid of the penny. That costs more than a penny to make. So uh, I don't think we as a society are there. And it is a societal choice. So yeah. I think we are not there yet. I think the American public still likes having cash. Okay. Uh, let me move then to uh, perhaps some more conventional thinking about the Fed's view of fintech, which is, how are you coping with a system that is getting permeated by fintech? Not just the freestanding fintech firms, but partnerships between fintech firms and existing banks, and fintech divisions within banks, which are, are happening all along. Uh, they're relying on all kinds of technology that is very, very difficult for an outsider to understand, yet you're still obliged to think about fair lending practices and a whole range of, of uh, laws that pertain to basically transparency in data and decision making. So first, we need to build our expertise. And so the kind of work that Jalapa and her colleagues are doing here, the kind of conferences, is something that we need to do not just in Philadelphia, but of course across the system. But it's beyond just assembling all of you so we can learn from you. Um, and that's really what this is about, us learning from you and having this dialogue. We also need to start investing in different types of talent within the system. So I can say for Philadelphia, we're on a path of investing in a small, but potentially over time growing group of machine learning folks. We hired our first uh, individual this summer, uh, and we're in the market to look for a second person. And that will be a resource for many across the bank to start to think about machine learning. And so one area is just simply understanding what it all is, mm -hmm. right? And what it is and what it, and most importantly, what it isn't, right? Second. Uh, we, uh, as in, in our supervisory role, we're increasingly going to be asked to opine in some way, shape, or form, right, on the relationships the institutions have, banking institutions have, with other vendors or their own internal team on what these algorithms are. We're also going to have to figure out some very deep questions uh, about uh, issues around uh, consumer compliance, fair lending, for example. And this, is, this was brought up by Governor Brainerd earlier this morning. Uh, you throw a bunch of data in, and oh, it discriminates against women in hiring. Who knew? Right? And so, but, and I think the institutions can rightly say, we never meant to do that. Right? It just trained on that data in a way that eh, we didn't understand. Right? And that's an honest answer. So one of the things we're doing, in addition to hiring some internal resources, We've also partnered with our colleagues at Penn Computer Science. Typically, Fed's always partnered with local economic departments and, and business schools. Here, we wanted to uh, reach out to the Computer Science Department. There's a fellow there, Michael Kearns, an old colleague of mine from when I was on the faculty there in engineering. And we hosted a conference about a year and a half ago, half uh, macroeconomists and half machine learning people, uh, and really trying to understand what that intersection is. And there are some deep issues there. For example, one of the issues that Kearns is working on is, how do you build fairness in, into a, 
a machine learning algorithm. It's irrelevant. It doesn't know fair, the concepts of fairness. Right? And it's actually a deep technical issue of how to do that. Again, we're not going to solve that problem. Hopefully Kearns and his colleagues will. But we need to understand it, because on the flip side, we're asking banks, you know, are you complying with these laws? And if they say, well, I don't know, I'm, the algorithm's just telling me so, that's not a good answer. You know it's not a good answer, but we need to understand it together. And last but not least, we, in our supervisory function, uh, have lots of data that we analyze for patterns, both at microprudential levels and at macroprudential levels. And so, for example, in Philadelphia, we are the repository of all consumer loans in the system. And so we have something called the Consumer Finance Institute here, and a big part of that Consumer Finance Institute that really grew out of the payment card center here many years ago, out of the credit card industry, uh, is a large group within supervision, regulation, and credit focused on trying to look for patterns within an institution and across auto lending, home equity lending, you name it. That is a pattern recognition problem, right? Are we, what are we seeing? What are those patterns? Are, we have great statistical minds here and econometric minds doing that work. But can we enhance it some way with some of the, the advances in machine learning? I don't know the answer to that, but that's part of what the Fed does and should do, is try to work with the academic community and the industry to enhance the, you know, the frontier of knowledge in these areas. So that's what we're working on. I guess another aspect of, of your responsibility is to think about how to integrate uh, these innovations and fintech firms into a system that will be more efficient, still fair and transparent, and one that uh, has a measure of competitive equality. Uh, and uh, I guess that raises the question of whether there should be a special fintech charter, whether we should have a sandbox to experiment with this sort of thing. In many ways, we seem to be behind the rest of the world in thinking about how to deal with this set of new players. But again, I'll reiterate, I'm not the Fed, it's just me saying this. Yeah. Um, I am very sympathetic to the idea as companies, many in, in this room, scale and get to scale. The idea that you have to have 50 as opposed to one, as we said mm -hmm. this morning, um, probably makes less and less sense. So I think there, there is clearly an advantage to having a national solution at a certain level. Right? I wouldn't say it's from day one for an institution as they're starting up, but at some level, having that national um, uh, charter or whatever, you know, and that, that is out there, um, I think I'm sympathetic to that. I'm not, we can quibble over the details uh, of that, and I think there's a lot of quibbling we could do, but I think the concept, at least, it makes sense. But the other thing that's very clear is that this will continue to be a partnership between traditional banking institutions and startups, not for everyone, uh, but for a lot of institutions, to be that third-party vendor, that white-label institution uh, behind the scenes. And I think, again, they're like all third-party vendors, particularly for small community banks. I mean, one of the great advantages of this country that we often don't see as an advantage is we do have a great diversity in the types of banks we have. For example, I was just talking at lunch, coming out of the recession, one of the first de novo banks, probably the first de novo bank in the country, is here in this district, the Bank of Burdenhand, Pennsylvania. They know how to serve the Amish and Mennonite community, who have very unique needs when it comes to their banking practices. For example, the Amish don't have insurance on the barn because if the barn burns down, the community rebuilds the barn. 
And so there's things, little things like that, but they're not so little. Alternative but, data is crucial. I would assume, <laughs> so you need to understand that, right? So, uh, so they're always going to, and so the third-party vendors, the core processors, are going to be critical uh, in this effort. And they were, it, it's not just the bank itself, but they will have to work on integrating the advances in fintech. And you know this, that's who the Jack Henrys of the world and so forth are the ones that are gonna be critical players. And we need to understand more and more what they're doing and how to regulate them as well. Because they're playing such a large role, just because you can get that economy of scale in the back office. Uh, and you can, so you can have the storefront serving that Amish community very well, but not having to worry so much about all the back end uh, stuff, right? You can take care of a lot of that with a core processor and or a banker's bank, right? Yeah, I think there are many people who have an optimistic view of what that will do to bank structure because it really takes some of the huge advantage out of scale. Yeah. If you can make scale a utility that is available to a lot of different banks, yeah. you don't really have to be that big on your own. There are some people, though, who worry that the whole fintech advances are reducing the charter value of banks so that it's less and less clear that, that banks will be able to continue as a strong and vibrant part of the financial services industry. Uh, I think that's a little hard to justify given current data on bank profitability, yeah. but nonetheless, it is an abiding concern because you do have people providing services that are very parallel to existing bank services, yeah. but under a very different set of compliance costs and regulatory prohibitions. At what point do you need to rethink what it means to be a bank? Well, I, let me add, I think that on the fintech side, on the small business and the consumer side, you're right. There's other pressure on banks too, yeah. the shadow banking, right, and funding, uh, being a funding source uh, for commercial uh, activity. And so you're seeing both, on both sides, the banks are being squeezed. Um, that said, I still think that there is a role, uh, there's clearly a role for regulation in the system. We need to make sure that the system remains safe and sound. It's sort of what we were chartered to do after many, as you, many, <laughs> yes. many chaotic moments in American history for that, right, that are right down the street after the first and second bank and, and so forth. So how that regulatory structure evolves over time uh, is yet to be determined. I mean, that's not to be determined, but it's clear that as some of these players get scale and they become what you'd have to call a financial utility, uh, they would, in some way, shape, form, in my mind, have to fall under some kind of regulatory structure. Interesting. Okay, let me now turn to, I guess, the longer-term issue, which is that many of these innovations um, are, are certainly sold under the principle that they're really relieving workers of routine, dull, mind-numbing chores and freeing up workers to think about more important, more engaging problems. The issue, of course, is that the people who are being freed up from these routine chores are often not well equipped to take on the more challenging, more interesting problems. Uh, and that could, in, to some people's way of thinking, create longer-term unemployment issues, which will have to become a concern of the Fed over the long haul. Uh, and I know that you and several other people have been thinking about that because there are lots of things we probably should be doing today to make that transition <laughs> Easier. Yeah. So the bottom line is the machines are coming. Uh, I don't agree with my old student Elon Musk that they're all going to. The, the human race is a threat right now. Um, but the but there's clearly change underway, and the pace of change is accelerating. 
I think everybody in this room knows that, right? We've always had new technology. We've always had Luddites. We've always had the need to retrain, to get the new skills. This has been true since the Iron Age and the Stone Age, right? It's a, but now the pace is just accelerating. So we actually, in Philadelphia, we just launched, uh, released a report where we, we asked the following question within this district as an example of uh, what could be happening nationally. So we asked, what are the jobs by geography within the third district, by city, because cities matter here, because it's not a one size fits all, that have a 95% or better chance of being automated in the next foreseeable future. And that number is about one in five within the third district. Uh, it's a big number. And so the point of the, that exercise and it'll vary a lot. You go to Reading, PA. Reading, PA, 22% of the Reading's workforce is in manufacturing. They never lost their small to mid-sized manufacturing base. Ooh. And they're actually good at it. The answer for Reading is going to be different than the answer for Philadelphia or the answer for Wilmington, Delaware, or you name it. And so if there's a message in that report, it's look at the data, understand what your challenges are, and then we need to rethink. And this is an issue that we've been working on here in Philadelphia and the system's been working on. We need to stop thinking of workforce training and development programs as a social good and a government program and start thinking of them as an investment. If there's one thing we're hearing loud and clear is a skills mismatch within the workforce and people can't find workers. The growth is being limited by their ability to find the labor they need. And so what we've done, we've done a lot of work in this area, uh, but don't, I, I don't see this as a threat where you know, Skynet's going to be active and we're all going to go away. Um, <laughs> that, but rather, this is a chance. It's not going to happen overnight, right? I mean, companies are going to make decisions on their capital expenditure in these technologies. Some of them are already doing it because they can't find the workers, so they've decided, well, the cost to me, you know, the, the bar is now... <laughs> much lower because I, I can't find the workers anyway. But we need to rethink the model of workforce development. And so we've released a system-wide book, actually, just last week in New York, we released this book. I wouldn't encourage you to read it overnight. It's uh, 1,500 pages, three volumes uh, of really interesting papers on a conference we held in Austin. But we took that one step further. We said, well, okay, so what would such a thing look like? And we've announced here uh, in Philadelphia, in partnership with Philadelphia Works, which is the local government uh, training program, a very large technology employer in the city, a very different model, and a nonprofit called Social Finance. Social Finance will seed with some other uh, money the startup of this skills-based training program that are developing skills specifically for that employer. One of the problems in these workforce training programs and why they fail, I love this phrase, they're based on the train and pray model. <laughs> we think we know what they want. Uh, we'll train you for something we think we know and then we'll just pray you get a job. As opposed to employers being engaged from get the get-go in developing the skill base. Uh, and so this will, uh, the seed money will come, but then as the employers get the workers they need, they will reimburse uh, in this case, Philadelphia Works, for that benefit of getting that worker with that skill set they need. And then this will start to create what we hope is a virtuous cycle. It's that, kind, it, that model, wh whether it fits here in Philadelphia, in this case, it's digital skills 
uh, that are necessary for this employer, but it'll vary a lot by city, it'll vary a lot by company you work with, whatever that skill set is. But the point is, let's stop thinking of this as some social good, and it is, but start thinking about it as a real hardcore business investment that we need to, need to make a public-private partnership to move the needle. Because this is, if I look at the, the state of the economy today, the biggest challenge we face right now is the, the lack of workers. I'm hearing this everywhere. And it's the workers with the right skill set. And you see this in the JOLTS data, the job openings and labor turnover data. I mean, we have now been running now for several months where openings are higher by a lot than the uh, people who are unemployed. And there's this lack of dynamism in whether people don't have the skills or they're in the wrong place geographically and unwilling to move. There are lots of potential reasons, but it is one of the limiting growth factors uh, in the growth of the U.S. economy. We need to bring more people off the sidelines into the workforce. So it's not only a productivity measure, but also a full employment measure. Uh, I mean, and it's yeah. often said, I guess, that we're much better at providing credentials and skills, and that at least it goes some direction toward addressing the gap. The Germans seem to have gone even further. Have we... Do we have a full understanding of why the German system of apprenticeships doesn't seem to take hold in the U.S.? Yes. I think, well, I have, again, my own view. Yeah. And it's going to be an odd thing for a lifelong academic, former university president to say, we are sending too many kids right away to a four-year college. Yeah. We, it's absolutely, and, it, and frankly, given the demographic shift of the college-age population in decline, I actually think it's going to get worse. There are many... Good, we, what we call opportunity occupations, and we've done this work with our colleagues in Cleveland and Atlanta, jobs that pay above median wage where there's a future where you don't need a four-year college degree. You almost always need something beyond high school, whether it's an associate's degree. And, and at some point, you may go back and get that four-year degree as you move up and you become a supervisor. But the idea that everybody in America, the path is high school, then college, it doesn't fit everyone. And what we're finding is these severe shortages with machinists. It, it, ask your, your local people that in your neighborhoods or in your communities. Diesel mechanics. There's a guy up in Lehigh Valley that's paying starting diesel mechanics over $100,000 a year. Can't find them. These are good-paying careers. Uh, and again, it could be a career that it, it goes somewhere else over time. But the idea, and, and Germans have embraced that culturally. I think it's a cultural issue, much more than we have. We sent the message out, everybody goes to college, everybody goes to college, everybody goes to college. And when we've dug deeper on this, and I've dug deeper on this, some of it comes down to the incentives we set up for guidance counselors in high school. Mm. Right? What's the measure of success of a guidance counselor? How many kids go to college? Yeah. Right? That's it. It's not how many kids got a great career as an electrician. Right? It's just not what they measure. And so some of it comes down to even how we, just generally how we think about what are good, solid career paths for people in our society? Interesting. Well, I would be happy to go on and on, but that's not fair because we did say that we would invite a larger group of people into the conversation. So this is perhaps a, a good time to ask if there are questions you'd like to pose to Pat. And I think there are people floating around with microphones. Yes, please. Right up front here. You don't want it if you don't. You can stand up and talk loudly if you like. It's not a very big room. Sure. Uh, Aaron Klein, uh, Brookings Institution. Uh, the Bank of England uh, put a real-time payment system out when the original iPhone came out more than a decade ago. I just got a 10XR, 
And if I deposited a check on Saturday, maybe it's there on Thursday. Monday was a holiday. Fedwire works nine to five, five days a week. Uh, Mexico, Poland, South Africa, all have real-time payment systems. What's, why isn't the Fed doing this? Again, this is part of this conversation about faster and more secure payments. I do think there are some things that we can do. My own view is extending the hours of, say, a net settlement system. The question for us is whether we put together a real-time gross settlement system or the private sector does. Uh, but one of the big differences between, say, the UK and us is just the sheer number of banks, right? And so uh, in the sense of our community banking system, one of the biggest concerns they have is that they would be shut out of a purely private sector system. I mean, this is a, they've expressed this very loud and clear uh, through this process. So what we need to do as the Fed is make sure that whatever we do has that ubiquity built in from the get-go. That said, I am very sympathetic to the idea somebody needs to do something, whether it's us or the private sector. But remember, there already are movements in the private sector to do some of this, if not all of it. So this is where we have to be thoughtful and cautious because our mandate from Congress is that if the private sector can do it, uh, we have to ask the question of why are we doing it? It's a little different model governance-wise than some of these other countries. And so we, we have to justify that we have to be engaged uh, and that the private sector just couldn't do it all on their own. It's just, a, it's just a different set of steps that we have to go through. But nothing happens quickly. Yeah, and this has been a long process. And that's and this quite discussion's been a, I admit, this discussion's been a very long process. I think we moved fairly quickly on the faster side. There's still a lot of conversation around security uh, and, and that task force uh, that is being run by Esther George. Well, the whole, system, the whole process is being run by my colleague Esther George in Kansas City. Okay, next question, please. Oh, well, stunned them. Yeah, <laughs> I think you've <laughs> exhausted the field. Well, uh, this has uh, really been uh, very interesting. Your mention of Elon Musk reminded me of, of another uh, Elon Musk anecdote. Uh, he's my student too at the time. He had a summer job uh, as a, an assistant to a large Canadian bank that shall remain unnamed. And his task was to help them understand how to use the new technology. And he came away from it convinced that big banks were so encumbered by legacy systems and by a sort of narrow functional thinking that they'd never be able to do it. And that's part of what led him to do uh, his, I guess, his second startup, right. uh, which actually had the odd name X.com until he realized he was getting a different kind of customer. And eventually <laughs> he became, uh, it became PayPal. Um, but it is, I think, an example of the difference in dynamics. By its very nature, what happens in the banking system is supposed to be slow and bureaucratic. It puts a very high premium on being absolutely accurate and reliable. But that's not the way technology works, especially in the modern world. And so it's a very difficult position to be in, especially if you have to be referee of the system, as yeah, yeah. the Fed more or less does. Well, many years ago, I had this undergraduate at Wharton explain the world to me, which Wharton undergraduates tend to Often do. Often do, yes. They yes, do so that a lot. It's not and hard to find. He said, look, the, wor the world's really simple. There are big, corp big organizations that have scale, scale and scope, but they can't 
innovate themselves, they can't innovate their way out of a wet paper bag. I don't want to be in there. I want to be the small startup that sells the technology they can't develop uh, to them. Stay there for a little while and then get the heck out and go back and do one again and recycle. That's kind of true, right? I mean, those days of innovation within a firm, and forget banking for a minute. Forget banking for a minute. You just look at some of the, the greatest innovative engines uh, in American society. I used to be uh, visiting something or other scholar at Bell Labs in Homedale. This was the greatest R&D facility mm. in the world. Yeah. I mean, you walk down the hall and there are Nobel laureates. It's now being turned into an office complex, senior citizen living, and, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's gone. <laughs> now, part of that is they were a regulated monopoly and they were able to do this, right? So you understand the economic. But we haven't really replaced that function. No, and also. so what we know, we have replaced that function. We've replaced the function with the market, right? And so, uh, and also with the Bayh-Dole Act, which people don't, quite give full credit to. Before the Bayh-Dole Act, universities, if it was government-funded research, had to make publicly disclose everything. You don't have to do that anymore. You can hold the patents. The universities couldn't mm. hold the patents. Now universities have an incentive to commercialize this, working with startups, either from faculty or with venture capitalists or angel investors, and that changed the whole ecosystem of an innovation in America. I mean, now, the vast majority of stuff they're truly innovative stuff uh, at sort of base level. I'm not talking about you know, a particular application uh, on the phone, but sort of base level uh, research. Like, for example, quantum computing. A lot of that is growing out of university research labs. I mean, and that's been true of material science and, and chemical engineering and you name it. And so that is the ecosystem we have today. So it's no surprise that um, Banks don't have big R. I mean, think about city in the day, right? They're spending all this money and innovating on ATM machines and other technologies. And, well, it's not only cities not doing that anymore. No large corporations, by and large, do that anymore. It's just not the system we have in America today and really in the world today. It's just a very different uh, innovation ecosystem today. Well, uh, this has been a very far-ranging conversation. Please join me in thanking Pat for... For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.